Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Today, we're going to talk about France reaching out to Algeria. We'll talk about the current state of the Baltics, and and then we'll reflect just a little bit on uh, the similarities between the Taliban's victory last year and Russia's war with Ukraine now, and how I imagine that's going to go. All that and more, coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. So, Brazil has its presidential debates between its top candidates as they begin gearing up for their election season, whereas we're having an election season ourselves here in the United States. But uh, I think uh, the debating is still a little bit off, perhaps for probably a month or so. Oh, well, we'll see. I'll, I'll get on that eventually. But, uh, yeah, we're in our own election year. It's not a presidential election year, but it's the midterms, so this is Congress and the Senate and the House of Representatives. So, we'll see how that goes, although it's highly expected the Democrats are going to get, uh, eaten alive. So, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Uh, both in America and in Brazil. On the other side of the world, we have floods continuing to ravage Pakistan. Oh, last week we talked a little bit about the massive flooding from the monsoon season in Pakistan and parts of India. Uh, it was northern and eastern India. And it appears that the flooding is still going on in Pakistan. Uh, better to have water than not, but, you know, a, a, too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. So, good luck to the people in Pakistan dealing with this. I imagine hurricane season is going to be every bit as merciful towards us in America as your monsoon season is to you. So, from one natural disaster to another, good luck. Uh, in Europe, gas prices have reached 3,500 euros per cubic meter. And since the value of the euro has declined so much, the dollar is actually ever so slightly ahead of it. So, this is actually... Uh, roughly $3,500 per cubic meter of gas. And so energy bills are going up. We're not in the winter yet, but energy bills are already soaring. And you have Dmitry Medvedev, Russia's uh, Security Council Deputy Chairman. That's a mouthful, but Russia's Security Council Deputy Chairman, Dmitry Medvedev, he has stated that prices in Europe are likely to hit 5,000 euros per cubic meter of gas. Uh, so, again, given the uh, the fall in the value of the euro down to roughly equal, although slightly less than the dollar, that's $5,000 per cubic meter of gas. Now, is Dmitry Medvedev biased? Yes, he's, Russia's, he's a Russian deputy chairman for their security council. But, is he probably right anyway? Also, yes. If the prices are this high now, and we're not in winter yet, and you have various European countries calling for 
calling for reducing the amount of gas you're using right now and calling for 15% reduction in gas consumption to save for the winter and this is supposed to be this collective fund and when that collective fund is voluntary but not really voluntary uh, it it's indicating that they're going to have serious shortages of gas when the winter comes and when those shortages hit the prices are going to go up people use gas a lot more during the winter to heat their homes and you know not freeze to death people use gas a lot in the winter a lot more than they do now uh, which is when it's already warm out you don't necessarily need the gas to stay alive you can the air conditioner is a choice, quite frankly, from most places, especially in Europe. But in the winter, uh, the gas is almost a necessity. Yeah, sure, you can have a fire in the fireplace if you have your own home, which is what some politicians in Europe are saying to do, go gather firewood. But I think I brought it up in one of my previous episodes, as uh, we were talking about this, Europe barely had enough firewood for everyone in the early 1800s and at the the height of firewood consumption uh, this is this is a time when france with 26 million people was the most populous country in europe behind russia you know 26 million they have 66 million now that's almost three times germany uh, has gone from, uh, I'm actually not entirely sure where they were at that time. It's kind of hard to map out, but given that Germany was like a million different countries. But they've gone from being wherever they were, they went from that to 40 million in 1870 to now they're at 80 million now. So I can assume it's roughly three times as much as well, given that uh, then you have the United Kingdom, who was only at like either 12 or somewhere between 12 and 16 million uh and the reason i even know these numbers is because i got bored one day and looked them up but so they went from around 12 million at the time to where they are now where they're at like 65 million 65 64 somewhere around there they're roughly equal to france although i know uh, I, I looked at it recently france has an edge by a couple million now so that's a six no that's like a five times increase. It's like a five times increase. And you have, at bare minimum, population doubling across the rest of Europe. And those are just the, the biggest ones to name. And of course, you have Russia. Uh, but the Russians aren't the ones who are going to be using firewood, so I don't really bother counting them. But they went from 40 million at the time of the Napoleonic Wars to 140 million now. And they had more before, although they had more territory as well. But when you're looking at population increases like that, and the fact that the forests have only gotten smaller, not larger, where is this firewood going to come from? If you're not going to have Russian natural gas to heat your home, and you have people talking about gather firewood for you, where is the firewood going to come? You're going to chop down the, the rest of your forests? The burning wood is way worse for the environment. <laughs> than natural gas, or even coal for that matter, you'd be better off just going back to coal, which is what I say they should do. Uh, coal and nuclear is the way of the future for Europe. Uh, 
especially once we get fusion off the ground, whenever the hell that happens. But for the time being, coal and nuclear is Europe's best option. They're not talking about that. Uh, but then again, it's a small minority of people who even talk about firewood, but just it's a ridiculous idea. Where's the firewood going to come from? Uh, whatever it is, I hope they have something. I hope the Europeans have something. $5,000 a cubic meter of gas is bad, to say the least. Winter is coming. Uh, uh, it still feels like summer here, but then I look at the calendar and see that we're at the end of August. Like, well, we, we've been talking about this since May. We've been talking about this since May. We talked about it in June, July, August. It's the end of August now. In what? Two, three days? It's going to be September? The clock is ticking. The, the temperatures are about to start dropping. Depending on how it is this year, we might have a really cold October. Because October is really finicky. You know, Sometimes it's relatively warm. Sometimes it just gets stupid cold really quickly. Depending on how the, how the seasons change and how fast the temperatures start dropping, Europe could get screwed. Like, really badly, if the temperatures drop faster, in like, in mid to early October, which it does sometimes. At least here in the United States, it has uh, ruined many Halloweens for me. But, and one time it was even snow on the ground before Halloween. Now, imagine that. Like, we're, we're at the point where a dice roll in the weather conditions could royally, royally, Fuck Europe. And there, there's still no end in sight. No one's reversing the sanctions policies. No one's actually stockpiling on gas. You, you have the French reaching out to Algeria, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. They'll probably, that's probably their lifeline, but that's a long-term solution. Because um, you can't force more gas through the pipelines that exist. You need more pipelines. So, you, you have winter approaching. And again, just, it feels surreal looking at how fast the summer went by and how we're at the end now. We're, we're about to go into fall. They have September and October to figure this out. And it's crazy to even say that. It's crazy that they've run out of time that fast. Like, they have two months. We're, we're It's not... August, September, October, no. We're at the end of August. They have two months to figure this out. I, 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 don't, I don't know what to say. Like, we're about to witness something horrible. We're about to witness something horrible over terrible foreign policy. And to an extent, we've got to blame America for this. You know, we... we we were the ones who led the charge in the sanctions war, even though we're hurting the least from it. But, my God, Europe is in trouble. And I imagine that the closer we get to the day that the first snow starts to fall, it's just going to get more and more troublesome. And it's not even like it's going gonna, it's gonna to come and go just like that. It could, it, the temperatures could drop, well, even without the snow. And congratulations, now you have to heat your homes. Uh, again, if if, it, if October gets cold quickly, Europe is screwed. 
or if we have one of those prolonged winters like we did, I think it was either 2019 or 2020, uh, you know, the winter of 19 into 20 and 20 into 21, those winters, uh, where it was extra prolonged and it, it took until freaking April for the snow to finally go away. Europe could get screwed if that happens. Europe is screwed if that happens. That, that, that's, that is one of the worst case scenario. The absolute worst case scenario is it gets cold in October, mid to early October, and then you have a prolonged winter on top of, of uh, a drought that happened this summer. Like, it, it's a dice roll right now. And uh, I know I keep talking. I know I keep talking about it. I, plenty of you are probably upset with me for constantly talking about this. But this is going to be the talk of the day when it, when it hits. So, at the very least, those of you listening to this in Europe, uh, I sincerely hope you have your plan A, B, and C ready to go. Because what's coming your way is horrifying. And that's, for me, on the other side of the Atlantic. So, I'll just leave that at that. And, but I hope you guys are prepared. We have the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan accusing Pakistan of allowing U.S. aircraft to fly through Pakistani airspace to reach the skies of Afghanistan. Now, Pakistan denies this claim, but the Afghans don't believe them, and the United States isn't going to say anything, so we could just assume that this is true. <laughs> but uh, we have clashes between opposing militias, which have killed 23 and injured over 100 in Libya. It looks like... Looks like the Civil War continues, although it hasn't ramped back up to its heights in terms of, you know, conflict and shooting. But this is the path that they're on. So, we will see. We, we will see. Uh, again, my opinion was that someone was just going to have to win anyway. And that the peace was probably going to fail. Because you had exa exactly what we're talking about now. You had these militias who w had no stake in the peace. Or at least they didn't perceive themselves having a stake in the peace. And blatantly saying that they weren't going to honor the elections. And, I'm, and I, I remember saying it many times. If these militias, these are not going to honor the vote, then what good is the vote going to do? Because the, the vote is supposed to end the war. The, the new legitimate democratically elected government was supposed to end the conflict. The vote was supposed to end the conflict. But if you have these groups of armed militias who aren't going to honor the vote, and these are militias on both sides of this conflict, well then, how does the conflict end? It can't. Not until these fighters, these armed fighters, are ready to lay down their arms. Or until a unified government can get the, the strength and resources to force them to lay down their arms, good luck with that, the, the civil war is in a standstill, because, precisely because no side can get a decisive advantage. So it looks like it's going to be war in Libya and not peace, at least not for now. We have the U.S., Egypt, and Spain uh, just next door holding joint naval drills in the Mediterranean. And all, I gotta say, that's one strange combination of countries um, but, yeah, they're doing naval exercise in the Mediterranean. Japan has promised to invest $30 billion into various African nations 
over the next three years. So that's about 10 billion a year. Uh, this is said to be done in an effort to counter China's influence in Africa. We'll see how this pans out, because as it stands, no one does infrastructure better than the Chinese. So there's that, but we'll see what happens. And you also have Japan, a part of that broader infrastructure plan that Biden announced that was going to bring infrastructure to the entire world, except for the United States, and it was going to be $600 billion. $100 billion was being footed uh, by the United Kingdom and Japan. Well, no, $100 billion was being footed by the United Kingdom, Japan, and Canada. Uh, they, they, were, they were footing about, what, 100 billion? Yeah, I think I think that's what it was. The United States had 200 billion. Germany, Italy, and France had 300 billion. And then you had the United Kingdom United Kingdom, Canada and Japan footing 100 billion, and it's like, hmm, one of these <laughs> isn't like the other. And I did a segment on that. But I guess this is, I guess this partially excuses Japan for not footing a hundred billion by itself into that project. Not that I even wanted the project to begin with, quite frankly. But if you're gonna do it, don't, don't make it us and us only footing the bill here. Make everyone else foot their part of the bill as well. If you're if you're going to do this, but, but I guess this partially excuses Japan. They have their own plan. They have thirty billion. So, but anyway, you have also, you also have the Belarusian president, Alexander Lukashenko, claiming that Belarusian warplanes have been outfitted and refitted to carry nuclear weapons. Now, considering that Belarus doesn't have any nuclear weapons, it's reasonable to assume that because their military and their air forces are so heavily integrated with the Russian military and Russian air forces, that these planes have actually been outfitted to carry Russian nuclear weapons. The Union state grows closer. And lastly, the U.S. State Department has warned U.S. citizens to leave Ukraine immediately. Now, you, you'd think that they would have said that a lot earlier, and I think they did. So, I, uh, just in case. I think they did. But if this is the first time they're saying it, it's a bit late. So... Uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what comes from this war in Ukraine. Although I have a feeling I know what's going to come. Ukraine losing. But I'll get only slightly into that later on. I'll be talking about something different and this will be a part of the topic. But that's for the meat of this episode, which will be coming up in just a moment. Alright, time to get into the meat of this episode. And uh, we'll... Start with France looking to Algeria. I brought this up a little bit earlier, but last week, French President Emmanuel Macron made a three-day visit to Algeria. In a joint statement, Macron and the Algerian President Abdelmajid Taboun declared that France and Algeria have declared, uh, well, they de they've decided to open a new era. Uh, they've they're, they declared that lay oh goodness. They declared that they were laying the foundation for a renewed partnership, expressed through a concrete and constructive approach, focused on future projects and youth. Uh, part of this 
uh, rapprochement was French planes, which were barred from entering Algerian airspace due to a, a previous diplomatic falling out. These French planes were, are now allowed to traverse Algerian airspace again, uh, so this will be used for various civilian airliners, uh, shortening trips to various parts of Africa, as well as French military planes heading to French bases in sub-Saharan Africa. So, benefits on that end. Uh, part of this re-engagement or reproachment was a promise on the part of France to allow an additional 8,000 Algerian students to study in France, and for context, there's around 30,000 Algerian students already attending school in France. So all in all, it seems like a pretty solid first step towards whatever it is that they're truly aiming to work towards. And again, this, there's probably an energy angle to this, like I alluded to earlier. Algeria already has a pipeline that goes to France. Algeria has natural gas deposits. So France, in this promise for a new foundation that's centered on concrete and a constructive approach focused on future projects like say a pipeline mm -hmm. maybe 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 lng terminals mm -hmm. uh as a, as a backup in north africa you know j j j just put, throwing that out there just throwing that out there mm -hmm. uh, it's not like they said that directly but you know it's very convenient that you make this declaration with this oil and natural gas producing nation at a time when you're two months away from perhaps one of the worst energy crises in French history. Uh, just throwing that out there, just throwing that out there. Yeah. But yeah, it appears that the uh, scramble for Africa, uh, I guess as a, as a side note, given everything we've talked about now, the scramble for Africa is underway. The second scramble for Africa is underway. Japan's in on it, uh, America, Britain, Canada... Germany, Italy, France, they're all they're all in on it. France has their own agenda. Uh, I imagine Spain and Portugal will eventually get in on it uh, as the energy crisis in Europe hits them as well, uh, although in a much more limited capacity. So they'll be able to reach out to Africa, and I imagine that's what they're going to do. You had Portugal looking to involve themselves in Mozambique, as Mozambique is involved in a war against jihadist rebels. Spain is looking towards Morocco. The second scramble for Africa is underway. Why? Because countries look at what China is doing, where they're investing all the, these trillions of dollars into infrastructure projects, and they look at that and say, China's gaining influence in Africa. We have to uh, counter Chinese influence. And now you have... You have Western Europe, plus the United States, plus Japan, sending billions to Africa. Now, it, it doesn't seem like the scramble for Africa has begun. Because it's, oh, it's just money for infrastructure. It's, it's just, we want influence and we have to stop them. Uh, them being China. We have to build roads and schools and improve the lives of the African people. It sounds nice and innocent, and hopefully it stays that way. But, the danger is that, uh, again, it goes back to the mindset. The mindset here is we have to stop China's influence. Now, China's influence isn't going to be stopped by you throwing 
chump change at the Africans. The Belt and Road is too big and deep for that. Like, uh, the pockets of the financiers in China are too deep for that. Uh, say what you will about Chinese economic collapse coming in uh, 30 days or whatnot, uh, which I'm not entirely inclined to believe. Maybe they'll have a recession, maybe they'll have a depression, but I, I'm not entirely sure that's going to result in collapse. I mean, they have a manufacturing base, and, well, even if they have a recession, people still need the stuff that China makes. So there's going to be a hard bottom for China. They have Russia building new pipelines to them. They, they have they have links, right? They, ha they have links. They can get what they need, uh, and they don't need to go through the seas to get it. China's not going to collapse, at least that's my opinion. So, China's going to be there, the, which means the Belt and Road is still going to be there. Because the Belt and Road is ultimately a geostrategic policy meant to insulate China's trade and China's economy from whatever tomfoolery countries like the United States and Britain and uh, and and. Uh, larger entities like the EU try to do to China, like they're doing to Russia right now. China would be a fool not to double down on the Belt and Road, to secure their own economic linkages to the rest of the world in a way that Western powers cannot disrupt, not meaningfully anyway. They're going to double down on the Belt and Road, which means that they're going to double down on the money. They're going to double down on the loans. They're going to double down on the capital that they're providing to the Africans. So you're, these attempts to curb Chinese influence in Africa with 30 billion from Japan, uh, 200 billion in infrastructure from the United States, although not all that's going to Africa, it's spread out across the world, um, but 300 billion from France, Italy, and Germany collectively with however much the, France, the, the French put into this agreement with Algeria as well. A hundred billion from uh, combined from Britain, Japan, and Canada. This is chump change compared to the Belt and Road. So you're not going to counter Chinese influence. Well, if you can't do it financially, well, now you have to close off the markets. You have to guarantee you have access to this market and guarantee that your competitor does not. You're gonna, we're going to end up with neo-mercantilism. That, that's the next phase. Uh, a return of mercantilism. Where our economic block can only benefit at the expense of your economic block. It's a, a, a zero-sum game of trade. And with demographic aging and the increasing dependency of many countries, China included as well, uh, uh, the increasing dependency of these countries on exports... Two markets where there are lots of people to consume these exports like Africa and Southeast Asia as these countries age. Again, this is Europe, this is Russia, this is China, Japan, Korea. As these countries age, they need the markets. So that's going to be Africa. It's going to be the Middle East. Uh, the Middle East is quite populous. In spite, of, in spite of the conflict, it's quite populous. So that's a pretty large market. Uh, at least four, around 400 million collectively. Yeah. Uh, Turkey and Iran have over 80 million by themselves. So that's 160 million, just those two. So 
This is, this, that's a large market, 400 million, rough estimate. There's over a billion in Africa. Now, I forget if it's 1.1 or 1.2. There's South America. There's going to be Southeast Asia. Indonesia by itself is at, what, 260 million people? Uh, so you have that. You have these large markets that are going to be fought over. And it's going to start with capital. It's going to start with, we have to curb the influence of China for this, this or that infrastructure project. But when it becomes evident, uh, considering that the Belt and Road is much more, well, uh, thought out, quite frankly, and it's, uh, it's viewed as a strategic project. It, it has mutual benefits, which is why so many countries sign on to it. But in the end, it is a strategic project for Chinese national security, their economic security. They need solid linkages that don't go by the water so that they can't be disrupted. And they want to grow the markets that they're going to be trading in so that as they become, uh, and the, the benefit of that is, as they become more dependent on their exports, the markets themselves will be richer so they can absorb more of these Chinese exports. Uh, so the Belt and Road is going to be there. And it's going to have the full weight of the Chinese government behind it. And the Chinese have committed far more to a project like this than Japan or Western Europe or the United States. So when it becomes apparent that they're not going to be able to curb or counter Chinese influence in Africa by playing the same game as China, where it's, we have money for infrastructure if you do trade with us because uh, everyone's going to do, oh, that's nice, but we're going to st stick to the Belt and Road as well. We're, we're, we're going to take your money, and we're going to do these infrastructure projects as well, but we're not going to cut ourselves off from the Belt and Road. That's silly. When that becomes apparent, oh, countries in Europe and America and Japan, they're not going to just keep throwing money at these countries so they can keep deferring to China. They're going to be like, well, we need some benefit out of this. And the easiest way to get that, and the easiest way to curb Chinese influence, uh, at least economically, is to cut off your market. The markets you control, you cut them off from your competitors. You cannot, the, the, hey, hey, we're going to give you this, 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 and this. But you can't do business with them, you have to do business with us. This is how, this is how the, the trade between the metropolitan centers in Europe and their colonies went, and uh, how it's been for quite a long time throughout other empires, but th that's the the European colonial empires are the example I'll bring up for this, because it's that that's going to be the more apt comparison. So places like Algeria, uh, if France gets its way, they're going to be like, hey, we're going to give you all this money, we're going to do all these infrastructure projects, you, you will have access to our market, and we have access to your market as well, but you can't do trade with the China. You can't do trade with China. You, you can do trade with, hey, you can do trade with Britain, Germany, uh, you, but you can't do trade with China and Japan, whatever countries they choose to double down in. Hey, we're going to give you these billions and billions of dollars for infrastructure, but you have to keep your trade with us. Or you need this percentage of your exports need to come to us first. We'll buy them. But they have to come to us first. You, you can't do trade with China. Not freely. No, no, no trade with China. So that'll be the first thing that happens. When it becomes apparent that 
none of these policies are going to curb China's influence. So with this fanaticism about uh, we have to do something about China, the next logical step is to just cut off the market from China. Well, ha, if you're not going to wean yourself off from China voluntarily, we'll just force your hand. And now you have no choice. And quite frankly, a lot of African countries are just going to go with China. Or they're just going to choose China over the, these countries anyway. But that'll be the next step. And after that, you'll even see exclusivity between the countries that are curbing Chinese influence. Well, now it's not just China. If you're looking at this from Japan, okay, well, it's not just China. It's Germany, Italy, France, and the United States are all competitors here. The United Kingdom is a competitor here. You can't trade with them either. You need to come to us first. And so e even if whatever goods and uh, go from Africa to these countries get get there and they're bots, you know, at their market value, they'll probably be taken, marked up in price, and then resold to whoever else wants them. It's going to be neo-colonialism. It won't be quite colonialism because the threat of force isn't quite as powerful given that the technological discrepancy between Western Europe, Japan, and the United States isn't as big over the Africans as it was in the 1800s. The, 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 oh my God, you, you had bows and arrows and spears against muskets and rifles. And eventually towards the, the latter part of the 18, the, not the 18, well, the 1800s, I almost said the 18th century, but towards the latter part of the 1800s the 19th century you even had gatling guns uh, the, no the the gap between us and the africans isn't big enough to do that sort of colonialism so it'll be a neo-colonialism where it's more financial based that's what this looks like it's going to be and i i said that the second scramble for africa was going to happen uh, just looking at the forces that were at play now it seems that we've reached this new level where it becomes a lot more apparent that it's happening. Because back then it was sort of uh, still me theorizing and hypothesizing that this was going to happen. Now we can see clearly that it is. And we can even see some of the players who are involved. Uh, I imagine it was going to... I imagined a lot of these players were going to be involved. I, I'm waiting on Turkey. I'm waiting on Italy. Well, Italy is involved to an extent with that infrastructure project, that joint collaboration between them, Germany, France, United States, and Japan, United Kingdom, and Canada. They're part of that. But So we're waiting on Turkey to get involved here. They're one of the powers I imagine will be in, involved in this scramble. We're waiting on Spain and Portugal, which I don't think will take too long. And, well, that's about it. That those are the countries I anticipated being involved in this new scramble. And almost like clockwork, they're all here. Almost. We're missing three. But of all the countries I named before, United States, Britain, France, Italy, uh, China, obviously, Japan, Turkey, Spain, Portugal. Heck, we even have Germany. Uh, to a, a much lesser extent, though, but we have an extra country. This is... Uh, I said this would happen. But watching it play out and the way in which it plays out is still very interesting. But the second scramble for Africa is happening. And it's largely out of necessity, both for trade, 
geostrategic interests, and energy. Although on the part of the United States, this is still very much optional. Uh, but for Japan, the geostrategic aspect of it, countering Chinese influence here, Japan is getting older. Uh, they're aging pretty fast. They, they have a heavily automated sector, uh, a heavily automated workforce, but eventually they're just going to need more. Like, it's, uh, they're getting old pretty fast. So even with their extra productivity that they get from their hyper-automation, they still need an end market. Now, they have the United States, but the United States can only do so much for them. So where else can they go? They can go to the Middle East. They can go to Southeast Asia. Uh, and Or they can go to Africa. If they go to Southeast Asia, they'll be competing. They'll be in direct competition with China. And that's probably not the best move for them. Uh, probably not the best move. Plus the everything they every piece of their trade will be well within range of the Chinese Navy, so it, and the Chinese Air Force is just probably not the best move. They can, they can go to the Middle East. It's a bit unstable, but there's lots of gas and energy resources, so that's probably on the list. But where's the safest bet? It's Africa. <laughs> Say what you will about Africa and the problems Africa has. They, strangely enough, they're one of the safer bets. And. There's already lots of investments sloshing around in Africa. There's lots of projects and infrastructure already being built in Africa, which makes it a better target than even South America. Now, South America will eventually be looked at once once there's no more room in Africa. <laughs> but there's also India. Japan is partnering with India as well. Although the degree to which they're able to penetrate that market is going to be entirely up to Indian politics, which again makes them less reliable as a partner. But with Africa, you have lots of different countries, you can deal with them individually, and there's already lots of investment being poured into Africa, which can build upon your own investment. Africa is the safest bet. Even though it's far away for Japan, it's the safest bet. China is going in on Africa. Japan is going in on Africa. Western Europe is going in on Africa. The United States... In this attempt to fight a cold war with China, they're going in on Africa. The scramble for Africa is here. So we see the players. We can see the players now very clearly. Uh, I don't think the I don't think the roster is done yet. I'm still waiting on Spain, Portugal, and Turkey. But I imagine even if they're late to the party, they'll be there. So that's the, the, the those are the players. But I also said. That African, some, the select few African countries, there will be winners in Africa from this second scramble. I feel if my suspicion is that Ethiopia is going to be one of them. Algeria or Morocco might be one of them. Egypt may be one of them. Nigeria will probably be one of them. And the East African Federation is probably going to be one of them uh, when it becomes a federation. Right now, it's just the East African community. They stand to be a great power born on the African continent. But a lot of the North African ones are going to be dealing with a lot of turbulence because they're proximate to, especially Egypt, they're proximate to Turkey. Uh, they're proximate to the Middle East. They're proximate to Europe. Uh, 
they're proximate to a whole lot of problems. Libya is in, in the middle of a civil war, or immediately right next to them. Ethiopia is in a civil war to the south of them. Egypt has sided with the Ethiopians in the uh, their project to dam up the Nile, which I eventually believe is going to lead Egypt and Ethiopia into conflict at some point. So then, then you have Algeria, which is being eyed up like a piece of meat by the French. You have Morocco, which I feel is going to be looked at by the Spanish or the Portuguese. Uh, you have uh, then, then you have. Uh, I was going to say Mozambique being looked at by the Portuguese, but they're not. I'm not anticipating that they're going to be one of the, the big winners from this second scramble. In fact, I think that they might end up being one of the big losers. Then you have Nigeria. Now, Nigeria, from what I can see, has perhaps one of the safest and most secure positions. Once Ethiopia is done with its civil war, they'll be in a similar position. So Nigeria, Ethiopia, and the East African Federation are the ones I place my biggest bets on winning this new scramble. Egypt, Algeria, Morocco, their futures are much more in flux because of their neighborhoods. So it'll be interesting to see what African nations are able to walk away from this new scramble better off than they were before without losing their independence, mind you. But it's it's taking shape. The new scramble is taking shape, and that that's how I see it playing out. Now, I didn't expect to talk about the new scramble. I was expecting to talk about France and Algeria, but I guess that just sort of very slyly and easily leaned into the topic, a larger topic, which is the second scramble. And it took me talking about it to even realize what we were witnessing right before our very eyes. But there you have it. So that's that's Africa, and it'll be very interesting to see how this continues to develop. I have a feeling we're going to see lots of proxy wars at some point in the future, but we can probably write that off for much later. But now we'll move on to another topic, which is trouble in the Baltics. Poland and the Baltics have been making some noise lately. Lithuania is choosing now to ban Russian tourists from the country, so that's a, a f this has the effect of further blockading Kaliningrad, because now even Russian tourists can't like move through the country and even get to part of their own country. So that route, if it was ever used, is no longer available. You have Lithuania doing that on top of, you know, cutting Russia off from Kaliningrad. They can't send trains or trucks through Lithuanian territory to get to Kaliningrad, which has forced Russia to resupply Kaliningrad by sea. Uh, if Kaliningrad was landlocked and the Lithuanians did this, I imagine it would have led to war very quickly. But luckily, Russia has a different option. And I say luckily uh, for the part of the Lithuanians. I don't think they were ready for that those problems. But... This is the situation with Kaliningrad getting ever so slightly worse by the second, and largely through Lithuanian policy. Uh, and naturally, the, the rest of the Baltics are backing them up on this, because if you siding with Russia is kind of dangerous for their sovereignty, even if it might be the better thing for them to do, it's a dangerous thing for them to do. Uh, then you have Poland, 
who uh, has been claiming that Belarus is destroying a memorial to Polish resistance fighters. Uh, now, part of Belarus's territory was actually a part of Poland in the lead-up to World War II. But Poland accusing Belarus of this is not exactly new. It's not really the most important thing here. Uh, what's important is that the Polish are continuing their belligerent stance towards Belarus, uh, going as far as to continue involving itself in Belarus's internal affairs. Uh, if we go back to 2020 for a little bit, you, if you remember, the Polish and even the Lithuanians were backing the Belarusian opposition party and the Belarusian opposition candidate back during Belarus's 2020 elections, where they claimed that uh, Lukashenko rigged the election for himself and that he didn't win legitimately. Something which is none of Poland or Lithuania's business, even if he did. Uh... Even if he did, that's that's not your country. That's not for you to comment on. And certainly not for you to step in and back opposition parties. Now that's my stance as a, a non-interventionist person. But needless to say, that that's what happened. And so from that point on, you've had this constant, or at the very least, a much more noticeable uh, intervention and involvement on the part of Poland and to a lesser extent Lithuania in Belarus's internal politics and internal affairs which only had the effect of driving Belarus straight into the arms of the Russians if there was ever any hope of getting the Belarusians to look away from Russia and go towards Western Europe or even Europe in general that opportunity was lost in 2020 because precisely because of these actions. Uh, I mean, before that, Belarus was happy to play both sides, and the Ru the Russians were happy to let him, because the Belarusians would get one deal from the U the Europeans, then you'd get another deal from Russia, who didn't want Belarus to, you know, leave Russian orbit. Then he'd go get a deal from the Europeans, and when the Europeans were getting too finicky about his style of government, uh, Lukashenko would sw switch back to Russia, who didn't bother even mentioning his government, because the Russians operate under the stance that it's none of their business. So he would, uh, Belarus and Lukashenko, to a large extent as well, because he's been in charge of the country for quite some time, they used to do that. They used to be effectively neutral leaning towards russia but effectively neutral they would take the deal if it was there no matter who offered it but poland and lithuania involving themselves in belarus's politics drove belarus away because why would belarus want to associate itself with foreign entities who want to influence and in the probably in the perspective of lukashenko undermine belarus's sovereignty and belarus's political system you wouldn't. You're going to go towards the country that doesn't do those things, which is Russia. Now, Russia was, uh, well, I actually, no, it wasn't Russia who proposed the Union State. It was actually Belarus who proposed the Union State. And the Russians have agreed, and they've sort of been dragging it along for quite some time. Uh, every now and then they give a joint statement, uh, Lukashenko and Putin. Uh, the, they speak as one country, so they... They've been incrementally getting closer, but 
nothing drew Belarus closer to Russia than what happened in 2020. Where, again, the Lithuanians and the Polish backed and supported uh, the Belarusian opposition candidate. And even, in the case of Lithuania, flew the flag of Belarus's opposition over one of their uh, government buildings. So that, that was just extra, extra provocation for very little gain, I'll speak. I'll, I'll say. But well, Poland continuing this trend is one of the important things. Uh, but what's also important here is that while I don't think it's necessary, uh, Poland, uh, Poland getting upset over this monument that they feel is being torn down by the Belarusians, uh, while it, I don't think them involving themselves in Belarus's internal politics is going to be helpful to anyone, let alone the Polish, it, what is important here is the history. Because I can, I recognize that Poland is actually acting in its own interest. The Polish resistance, uh, this is the resistance and the partisan movement that uh, the Polish had when they were under Nazi occupation, this is at Poland acting in their own interests. This resistance holds a very important place in modern Polish history. But looking at this from a broader geopolitical perspective as well, Poland, in doing this to Belarus, is really going after Russia, right? They're really going after Russia because they gain nothing from doing this to Belarus. If Belarus's sovereignty is ever, for whatever reason, violated or called into question, the Russians will move in immediately so that they don't have a new frontier to deal with or a, a new enemy on their on their border. They'll move in, so uh, no, no, no matter what Poland does here, Belarus is going to be safe, and they're gonna—it'll be a waste of time. So, what's really happening here? Poland is actually attacking Russia through Belarus, uh, and it's—it uh, it sounds strange, but it's just them being petty on this specific issue. Um, now, while I don't think it's—again, I don't think it's helpful to anyone, but. It's understandable because of the importance that those resistance fighters have in Polish history. But, again, what's most important here from a broader geopolitical perspective is the history. Russia is going after, uh, not Russia, Poland is going after Russia. Now, why do I say this? Well, uh, just we'll just take a brief walk down history lane. As most people are familiar with the historic antagonism between Russia and Germany, but before Germany was a United State, the main clash, the main powers in Eastern Europe that used to fight each other was Poland, it was Poland and Russia. Russia has taken land from Poland many times. Uh, Poland used to be way bigger, uh, and a lot of that territory was in the East, uh, territory that now encompasses Belarus, Ukraine, parts of uh, Western Russia. But Russia took that. Russia took a lot of that. Uh, and they, they, these two have been clashing for a very long time. Uh, uh, leading In lead up to the, the Great Northern War, where you had Poland and Russia who were technically on the same, nominally on the same side against Sweden. 
button. And you had various wars between Russia and Poland immediately after that, and in the lead up to that war, which saw the Russians take more and more and more territory. So, this was the main antagonism in Eastern Europe prior to the creation of Germany, uh, a unified Germany. It was Poland and Russia. Uh, and these two have not had a very good history. Uh, again, before Germany was a unified state, Poland and Russia had fought many, many times. And Russia has taken land from Poland many, many times in the past, including a three-way partition of Poland between themselves, Prussia, who eventually became the Germany we know, and Austria, one of the German states. Uh, uh, so this includes that, this three-way partition, uh, this includes a, a wholesale annexation of Poland following the Napoleonic Wars, the two fought a war in the 1920s after World War One. then there was the simultaneous German and Soviet invasion of Poland in 1939, which ended up in a partition of the country split in two, which is where those territories that used to be Polish are now part of Belarus, this, this is how that border got changed. Uh, then there was the puppet government set up by the Soviets at, in Poland after World War II. Uh, and then there was the, the, the Polish independence from Russia, uh, which lasted until the current day. But Kaliningrad still belongs to Russia. Although, actually, that one was taken from Germany. So, you know, not quite Poland, but, you know. So, you have... Just over the last 100 years, let alone before Germany was a, a country, just over the last 100 years, we have seen these two consistently in opposition to one another. Which is why when Poland is being antagonistic towards Russia, I say it is in their interest to do. Uh, just look at the history. If Poland is not active in its diplomacy and in its foreign policy in keeping countries like Russia at bay... Well, the second the Russians get on Poland's doorstep, it's already too late for Poland. I mean, look at Poland now. Look at Poland in the 1600s. Poland was huge in the 1600s. They're a really reduced state in terms of size. I mean, they're one of the bigger European countries. But they're not anywhere near as big as they used to be. They don't have the resources that they do, even if their population is bigger than it was back then. Then look at Russia. Russia's gargantuan, and if Russia makes its way towards Poland's border, that means getting more people, more land, and more resources that Russia can use to crush Poland. If Poland does not expand outwards towards Russia, then Russia will expand outwards towards Poland. Uh, th this stretch of territory running from Estonia through Lithuania, through Belarus, through Ukraine, and, Mo and Moldova, that stretch of territory is the field of competition between Poland and Russia. It pretty much always has been. And Russia is on the upswing right now. They have the high ground. They have Belarus locked in orbit. And they're going to have Ukraine. They're fighting a war for Ukraine right now. Poland is a part of a military alliance where they have Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia. Well, that's only part of the equation. If you lose Belarus and Ukraine... Congratulations, you're screwed because you're going to have this super duper huge Russia right on your border. There's nothing you can do at that point. You can only be attacked. Attacking Russia at that point is suicide for Poland. 
especially during a period of Russian strength. Attacking Russia would be suicide, which means you can't keep them at bay. You can only keep Russia at bay when Russia isn't on your doorstep, because if they expand to your doorstep, well, that means they're on they're in a period of strength. Poland does not do well during periods of Russian strength. They get annexed during periods of Russian strength. They need to keep Russia at bay. So even though I'll say that them doing all these things is probably a bad idea, it's in their interest to do. Keeping Russia at bay is very much in Poland's interest to do. Bad things happen to Poland when they have a border, when they share a border with Russia. So when they're antagonistic towards Russia, it's in their interest to do. And to a lesser extent, the same is true for the Baltic countries. Uh, Now, a lot of them... Uh, two of them in specific, have borders with... Actually, they all do. Uh, Courtesy of Kaliningrad, Lithuania even has a border with Russia. But letting Russia expand is not in their interests. Again, when an expansionist Russia means that Russia is going through a period of strength, these countries get annexed during periods of Russian strength. It makes sense for them to fight back against Russia, even if they are themselves not in a good position to do so. And the problem with their policies that I see, even though it may be in their interest to do, is uh, uh, this, even though it's in their interest to be highly cautious and, and even antagonistic towards Russia, neither Poland or any of the Baltic states have sufficient military strength to underwrite this belligerence. They're writing a check they can't cash. Uh, literally, they're writing a check that their military cannot cash. Uh, they they can't do anything. Uh, they they can't back up their words with the threat of violence. And this is most evident given that they choose to fight Russia indirectly via Ukraine rather than through direct confrontation. Because uh, that's the only way they can fight Russia. They let the Ukrainians do it for them. They're not in a position where they can fight Russia. Their militaries are not strong enough for that, or even a, a, a brief conflict with Russia. They, they would run out of ammunition. If the rates of ammunition consumption uh, in the Russo-Ukrainian war, especially when it comes to artillery, or anything to go off of for the current state of modern war between m- relatively modern states, in Europe at the very least, because every terrain is different and it's going to require different things, But if the war in Ukraine is any indication of how wars are fought and won in Europe from this point onwards, Poland and the Baltics don't have enough ammunition to fight the Russians for a day or a week. They'd run out if they tried to keep up with Russia's uh, rate of fire from their artillery. They would lose and lose very quickly just because they ran out of ammunition. Once you lose the artillery duel, it's a wrap. It's a wrap. Russia has the best air defense systems in the world. You're going to fire your missiles at them. Okay, well, now you're out of missiles. They would literally run out of ammunition. And they would just get obliterated. And it would be horrendous to watch from 3,000 miles away. They're not in a position to fight Russia. They, They cannot back up the things they do with even the threat of force. And that's the biggest flaw I see in their belligerent stances towards Russia. 
towards Belarus in backing up the Ukrainians. This is the biggest flaw I see in their policies. They can't back up the things that they do with force. And sometimes uh, you need force to legitimize the things you say and do uh, when dealing with other countries, especially countries who are currently using their own threat of force uh, as their means to the end. That's, that's the problem I see with Poland and the Baltics. If Russia comes out tomorrow, Lithuania is doing these things with Kaliningrad and blocking off Russia from getting to it. If Russia, for whatever reason, said, we want the smoke to Lithuania, Lithuania has to back down immediately or they're going to get obliterated. Like, there's no negotiation at that point. They, because they don't have the threat of force. They, they can't even haggle at that point. If Russia calls the bluff, if Russia delivers the ultimatum, they, uh, Poland and the Baltics have to back down. They have to lose face. And if they don't lose face, they're going to lose their country. And in, in, in the case of Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, they will lose their country if they don't choose to lose face in that moment. If Russia ever comes out and says, we want the smoke, they have to back down. They don't have the force to back up their words, so they have to back down. They'll fall apart. The Russians have force to back up their words. as We can see the force that they're using to back up their words. They said no NATO in Ukraine. They said uh, none of this. No, no NATO infrastructure in Ukraine. No integration with Ukraine with NATO forces. They said don't attack the, the rebels in the Donbass. They said... Hey, make peace, uh, abide by the Minsk agreements, or we will have to do something. And now we're seeing that those words were actually backed by this. What's going on in, the, in Ukraine right now? The force. You, Russia's words were backed by the force, which we are currently seeing right now. And we're, we're about to see explode across Ukraine in probably not too distant a future but Poland and the, the Baltics they don't have that N no one in Europe has that quite frankly uh, the Ukrainians had that uh, and now they're losing that because the Russians threat of force was greater than their own the US has the threat of force Turkey has the threat of force France if it wants to has the threat of force they they make all their military equipment so if they mobilized well they already have the the domestic production capability to, to, you know, they have, they have something there to build out if they need to. So, but no one else has that. No one else really has that. Uh, so when you look at these countries, Poland and the Baltics being the, my, the center of my focus for this, you know, segment, they don't have the force to back up what they do. And that's the biggest flaw that I see in them taking up these, uh, a, aggressive and belligerent stances towards Russia. If it if at any point the Russians call their bluff, they they have to back down. And at that point, well, you can't be taken seriously anymore. So that that's the biggest flaw I see with them. But uh when the war is over, uh cuz we're seeing how countries are acting right now and everyone's talking about Russia as if they were uh, the spawn of the devil and how Putin is the uh, is basically Hitler. But when the war is over, which it inevitably will be, it'll be very interesting to see 
how things go between Russia and Poland, and between Russia and the Baltic, between Russia and Germany, between Russia and the UK, between Russia and France, you know, in the United States. Everyone who was all aboard the mother of all sanctions train, everyone who was all aboard the we're going to cripple the Russian economy, we're going to turn the ruble into rubble, we're going to... We're going to do all these things to Russia. We're going to cripple them. It'll be very interesting to see the, the post-war relationship between all these countries in Russia and how the Russians <clears throat> look at them and how they act. That, that'll be one of the, the, perhaps one of the funniest things to watch, how a lot of these countries uh, act in the immediate aftermath of this, this war and the months following. That that that'll be something to watch. Uh, that'll be pure cinema, <laughs> uh, but uh, pure theater. But uh, uh, mm. <laughs> oh goodness! I mean, I, what, what more is to be said about that? I mean, it's it's very flamboyant to say we stand with Ukraine while Ukraine is at war with Russia. Uh, but it'll be at a minimum very awkward to say that. When Ukraine no longer exists as a country, which I think is going to happen to Ukraine. As a matter of fact, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how the world responds, because you know, uh, countries in the East will have lots to say about the West when this happens, and it'll be interesting to come across some of the the takes that they have on this, uh, particularly in India. Uh, but no, nevertheless. It'll be interesting to see how the propaganda machine reacts to Ukraine losing, very evidently. And how... Uh, it, it, uh, I, I'll, just, I'll just leave it at that. It'll be very fun to watch how countries change up after the war. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. A war which I feel is about to enter its final phase or phases. Uh, and there's talk of the, the slow and methodical Russian offensive in the Donbass. As well as rumors and rumblings of a broader offensive which may occur in the near future with large sweeping movements across the Ukrainian countryside after they break through the defenses in the Donbass. Uh, and the closest parallel I can draw to that uh, so that you can sort of uh, visualize what I'm talking about is uh, something similar to what we saw last summer with the Taliban and their big offensive, which culminated in the fall of Kabul, if you remember, during the summer they took over the countryside and all the border crossings, and then they, they came in, they swooped in into the center of the country, and they it event, they eventually took Kabul. Uh, now, the specific strategy the Russians are going to use is probably going to be different, because they're, they're not fighting, uh, this isn't an insurgency that they're fighting, the Russians are fighting a state-to-state -state war. So the, the specific strategies and tactics are going to be different. But when they start doing those large sweeping movements across Ukrainian territory and start gobbling up huge swaths of Ukraine's land, um, that'll be interesting to watch. And that's what some people are now speculating is going to happen in the near future, especially once the defenses in the Donbass are cleared out, uh, which is where the Ukrainians are dug in the most heavily. So again, we might see something similar to what the Taliban did. And I remember when I watched the news broadcasts of the Taliban walking, not fighting, but walking through the streets of Kabul, I had this, I had this feeling ringing and reverberating in the back of my mind uh, back then. And 
it was it was it was very entertaining to watch, mind you. I remember immediately after I recorded the episode uh, that I had I had to revise everything that episode because everything w- I written down everything I had written down was immediately rendered obsolete by what I saw that morning. <laughs> so I, I had to revise everything, and then once I finished the podcast, I watched a, a news broadcast of the, the Taliban walking into the Capitol building. It, it, it was it, it was something to watch. Uh, and I also remember back in February, when the Russo-Ukrainian war first started, I was watching this video where the Russian troops, they were moving through Chernobyl. Uh, the, 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 the Chernobyl. They're moving through Chernobyl, this infamous place, which has always been associated with Russia, especially since the meltdown that occurred there. Seeing that place fall back into Russian hands, and seeing the Russians return to this place they had not been to in 30 years. And knowing that they were likely to stay. That, it, it, was, it was surreal. And at that time, I got the feeling. Uh, the, the, I got the same feeling I got watching the Taliban taking over Kabul. When, you know, when they were pulling down flags and to replace them with their own flag. That feeling deep down that told me in a way that words could never convey, it, that history was being made. It was that same feeling I felt when the Russians moved into Ukraine, except it was much stronger, much stronger. And Chernobyl was really symbolic for that. I mean, yeah, I remember in modern warfare, there was a mission where you're in Chernobyl and you're in the modern warfare, the, the game, you're, you're fighting the Russians. So seeing seeing modern warfare play out in real life in that context where the Russians are Russian troops and tanks are moving through Ukraine and Chernobyl specifically was it, that was just surreal. It was surreal. It was really the best word I can use to describe how it felt watching this. But again, it was just that feeling that history was being made, and it was much stronger watching Russia go into Ukraine than it was watching the Taliban take over Kabul. And even then, you, you had this, this sense that history was being made, and it, this was a major event. And it is. Uh, the Taliban winning the war was uh, this major event. And But the war in Ukraine wasn't even over. It, it had only just begun when I got this feeling. And so, I can only imagine how the, the feeling it's going to be when the war is over. Especially if it ends the way that I think it's going to end, which is the total annexation of Ukraine. Uh, I can only imagine what it's going to be like watching Russian troops walk into Kiev. That's going to be something to watch as well. But, regardless of when, uh, Russia winning the war will definitely, definitely make history. Just like the Taliban winning their war did. But where the Taliban's victory just made history, Russia's victory, I imagine, will make world history. And then we'll talk about it on the podcast. Uh, but until that day comes, uh, we will just have to wait and see. But that is all I've got for you today. I hope you enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing, folks. The second scramble for Africa is underway. And we, uh, unless you're African, but uh, we are going to have fun watching it together. 
Now, I've been your host, Tyshawn Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.